Hi, you're listening to the Sound of Solidarity podcast. My name's Sophie Cotton. I'm a socialist here in Sydney and a member of Solidarity. I'm active in my union and on the streets um, fighting this system. This podcast was recorded on Aboriginal land on Gadigal country here in Sydney. Um, Sovereignty was never ceded and the struggle for land rights and self-determination continues. Today's podcast is a recording of a talk that I gave to a conference in Sydney called Provocations, a queer liberation conference put on by Pride in Protest, which is an activist group here in Sydney fighting for queer rights. Um, It's a talk about trans rights, theories of gender and how we can fight back. I hope you enjoy it. Um, Thanks everyone for having me here. It's really great. So what I wanted to talk about is, you know, in the spirit of provocation, I want to talk about the main responses that people have to transphobia and the ideas people have about how we should fight back against it. Because I think behind all of the strategies that get proposed, there's always ideas in people's heads as to how the world works and why they're making those priorities. So what are the mainstream ways that people tend to uh, think in the liberal mainstream how we fight back against transphobia? People think that most people don't know much about uh, trans people, so maybe we need education campaigns, maybe we need awareness campaigns, we need to encourage people to use pronouns in their their email signatures. Uh, We need anti-vilification laws to stop transphobes saying bad things. We need representation of trans voices in the media, on TV, and and everything like that. And we need trans people to make safe spaces for ourselves where cis people can't say nasty things. And this can be in lots of ways. For example, in my union and down in the Greens party in Victoria, there's been a focus by trans activists of coming up with a code of conduct to kind of like outlaw transphobia. Um, And there's lots of other ways. People sometimes call for policing to kind of try and get get these transphobes dealt, dealt with. I think behind all of these ideas is a really problematic idea about how our society works and how our world works and how transphobia fits into that. I think they assume that the world is kind of a neutral battleground of ideas where if we can kind of, you know, convince people away from transphobia, beat the, beat, beat the transphobes, that we can actually move in kind of a progressive and cumulative way towards kind of a better, a better future or a liberated future. And they think that there's no fundamental uh, contradiction between, you know, liberated gender roles and capitalism and our system. And I think both of those things are wrong. And I hope that in the discussion we can talk about some of those strategies and, and what, because I think there's, there's lots to talk about. So for me, these ideas, I, I, the reason I called this talk kind of material girl was because um, a couple of reasons, but I was thinking about how the right has claimed these ideas of a material conception of gender. So I wanted to talk about three different material girls. The first one is a book by Kathleen Stock, uh, which is called Material, who's a bigoted, idiot, transphobic feminist, and it's called Material Girls, Why, Re- Why Reality uh, Matters for Feminism. So that's the first materialist theory, so-called. It says that trans people don't exist, we're all crazy, and we should all go and, go and detransition. I don't think I need to convince anyone here that this is not part of the left, this is not a progressive ideology, this is a reactionary, uh, a reactionary ideology, whether it's put by, pushed by Peter Dutton or Kath- Kath- Kathleen Stock. Kathleen Stock. The second idea, I think, uh, that purports to be a materialist kind of theory is kind of a transmedicalist idea that we need to, what, what makes trans people legitimate is having done all of the surgeries and hormones and, you know, uh, bought the expensive clothes and basically, you know, 
hustled, got our money and, and made ourselves access, uh, acceptable to the system. And, and the Material Girl that I associate with that is the Saucy Santana song, Material Girl, that we're all, you know, uh, <laughs> and the memes associated with it. So that's the, that's the second one. And I think that for most trans people, we, we kind of get caught between these two poles. Either we, you know, we're told to transition ourselves into the system, into the system pay all this money and, and that our bodies are what is wrong. Uh, or we get caught between this, these people who say we shouldn't exist and we shouldn't have the right to determine our, what we do with our own bodies. So instead, I want to talk about another option, which is based on the philosophy and the, and the, and the methodology of the original material girl, Karl Marx. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, like, e even in, in Capital, there was just a when, when I was reading it recently, there was a, a couple of these quotes that, that really struck me. So he talks about things like socially uniform objectivity and objective social validity. Object it's a both objective and social. So he wanted to investigate how something like money um, can be both completely socially constructed, uh, but also a very, a very, very hard reality. And I think that's important because social constructions can be changed; they can be abolished but they also can't just be wished away or dreamed away. They have to be struggled against. And the final element of this theory for me that I think is, is important is that these social constructions are constantly changing. Uh, things, th things like the, the economic system and things like gender are constantly a subject of struggle between the working class, people who have to work for a living, like everyone in this room, and the, and the ruling class. And they have different um, interests when it comes to all of these things, whether it's you know, economics or, or things like gender. So I think consistent with that kind of approach, we should see gender as um, something that is a social construct and, and, is, and, and is objectively real. So for me, the, that material basis of gender comes down to a social relation where we get um, assigned to different roles in society to do with production and reproduction. Production in the sense of producing all the goods that we need and the services that we need to live and reproduction in the sense of the reproduction of the class as a whole, which has, which includes everything from the raising of children, the birthing of children uh, and, and the reproduction of our everyday lives in terms of cooking and, and cleaning. And in our society, um, historically, we saw a, a particular coercive set of, set of rules where men were the productive ones who went out to the workplace and earned, earned, their, earned the living for the family, and women stayed at home and did all of the domestic, domestic labour. That was the fundamental, fundamental system of gender. Today, we've seen, we have seen changes in that. I mean, most women work. Not everyone lives in a, in a heterosexual relationship, but enough of us do that it has a huge structuring effect on our world. And most women do work, but are far, still far more likely to do all of the reproductive labour, far more likely to be in a part-time job as a result. And you can kind of use the same um, idea of, of gender as, as assigning us to these roles to describe other, other genders in other societies, like Fafafina in um, Samoan societies. That it all has to do with the way that we are assigned to production and reproduction. And of course, alongside the, the, that basic relationship, there's a whole system that, that grows up about that, that kind of structures our entire society. It's not just about the norms, about how we behave, how we should speak, how we should walk, but also what industries we, we're, we're supposed to work in um, and, and uh, you know, how it gets discussed, discussed on the media and TV and everything. It really goes down into the very roots of our society right to the very top. Um, so. Within, within that, within this, within that oh, I want to talk about the contest between the ruling class and the working class over this relationship 
of gender. I think for 200, for 200 years or so, the ruling class has been trying to assert that fundamental relationship because it is in their interest that there continues to be a new generations of workers that are raised healthily, the people continue to be fed. We know that there are estimates of about $345 billion per year it would cost the Australian government just to do the child, rear, child rearing responsibilities. It's a huge, hugely important for the, for the ruling class. But I think we need to also think about the struggle over trans rights as fundamentally related to that system. So attacks on trans and gender diverse people that we're seeing at the moment, I think is, is at some level fundamentally about re-inscribing and reinforcing those gender roles under capitalism. And this happens in a lot of ways. So we all know probably stories about um, cisgender women who have been accused of being a man for using the bathroom. We probably have heard stories about, I, I, we probably know lesbians who've been accused of being, being men because of the ways that these these um, gender is being kind of exacerbated by, the, by these attacks. But I think it goes deeper than that. And an example to see that is um, Giorgia Maloney, the fascist who was recently elected in, in Italy. Her slogan that she ran on was God, fatherland and family. And she has very explicitly connected attacks on trans people and LGBT people, who she in her speeches calls the LGBT lobby and gender ideology. She's connected that with her attacks on women and her ideas that women should be forced back into the home and should, should produce children for family and the fatherland. And those two things that, that, of, of race and gender are being absolutely connected. And I think we, by seeing it this way, we can see that the category of gender is being contested by these attacks on trans rights. Likewise, in the, the, on, the, on the other hand, I think we need to see that attacks on women's rights um, are, are connected back to uh, rights for gender, gender diverse people. So I think we need to go beyond, for example, it's common for in trans spaces for us to say that abortion rights isn't just about women, isn't just about cisgender women, it's also about transgender men, um, non-binary people who need abortions. And I think that's fine to point that out, but I think there's much more going on. Because when the right are attacking abortion rights, they ideologically see it as an attack on women so when, the, when, they're attacking, um, when they're attacking the abortion rights, they are reinscribing what it is to be a woman, that you should stay home, have babies, you shouldn't have rights to control your own body, you should be having babies for your country, for the nation state, and for your husband. And that is fundamentally what is part of the system of cre creating these oppressive gender roles for all, you know, all, all LGBT people. Every new contest that comes up over this, whether it's about abortion rights, equal pay for, equal pay for women in feminised industries, um, fair conditions for people in feminised industries and so on. Every single contest can be won and it can be lost. And in that process, uh, we're fighting over the nature of these gendered categories and that has huge impacts for us, I think, as, as trans people. Um, the, the other thing, I guess, to note is that it happens within a certain system, a capitalist system, uh, with a certain set of relationships of, of production and, and reproduction and, and within the context of a nuclear family. And I think that's important as well when we're talking about the connection between these transphobic ideas and the reality beneath them. So I think it's very obvious for anyone watching what's happening in the UK at the moment that Rishi Sunak and the Tories are choosing this moment of huge economic crisis in, a, in, in, in you know, strikes sweeping, the, sweeping all across Britain, uh, inflation crisis. They've chosen this moment to try and use a divide and rule strategy 
and, and, and attack trans people and, and try and get us fighting each other instead of, instead of fighting them. And I think that is a constant feature, you know, in Australia, America, of, of these transphobic attacks, that divide and rule. And the final thing to note is that trans people, the vast, vast, vast majority, are members of the working class. And so our oppression as trans people is linked to our oppression as workers. That means that we find it hard to get a job, we get kicked out of a job when we do transition, we find it hard to, hard to get housing, we get kicked out of our housing, we find it hard to get healthcare. And those are struggles that we share with, with all, all working people. So I want to talk about what this means for our strategies and our tactics of, of con contesting trans transphobia, because I mean, on one level, to, like fighting for trans rights is, and fighting for against sexism, fighting for black rights, all of these are naturally part of the class struggle, whether it's in the workplace or it's in the streets. But I think, I guess what I wanted to say is that the uh, politics is an art as well as a science. I think you need to be able to look at the system, but it's about experimenting, finding the demands that can move people into action. Um, and sometimes it means, uh, the, the example that I want to share is what we, have, what we found in the NTU about finding a very non-radical demand that was actually able to move the, move the struggle forwards, move us forwards on transphobia, um, despite the fact that it's far from kind of a full liberated perspective. So just to tell the story, what happened was about two years ago, we had a national um, council meeting, which is like the highest body of my union, the NTU, which is the Union for Tertiary Education. Um, and as part of this, the queer caucus, we have a very active kind of queer caucus with a lot of trans people, probably one of the most active in the country, had come up with a motion condemning transphobia. And part of that motion was about the, our experiences of transphobia in the workplace, in our workplace where there is um, transphobic feminists um, active. So the motion, uh, part, of the, part of the motion had two things that our union bureaucracy and the transphobic feminists that they were mates with had a problem with. One of them was that we were critical of hate speech masquerading as academic work. If you're writing hate speech, it's not legitimate academic work. Second, we criticised gender critical ideology. We said it was not part of the left and that we, had, that we had a problem with it and the union should take a stance as a political stance against gender critical ideology. And I think these were absolutely right. That was overturned with a hostile amendment coming from the transphobic feminists, the leadership of the, the union and supported by groups like Socialist Alternative. Um, the main responses to this crisis, I mean, on the one hand, people were very angry with what had happened. And this is what created an opportunity. But the political responses were quite poor. I mean, on the one hand, we had Socialist Alternative saying, you know, the uni bureaucracy was right. That, you know, this is implicitly an attack on academic freedom and freedom of speech. Um, on the other hand, and we had a number of even trans union organisers took a similar perspective. Um, on the other hand, we had people who took kind of a safe spaces kind of approach. They said, the union is no longer a safe space. We need to quit in protest. We all need to quit the union and that's what we're going to do. Um, as a socialist in the union, it was, it's, and as socialists in our unions, it's our jobs to fight against those things. And, we, and what we did is combine two things. On the one hand, we argued hard against this. We had to mobilise the anger against the bureaucracy, the legitimate anger. We needed to say that, these, that we had every right to criticise gender critical ideology, that by taking an uncompromising stance against transphobia, we were going to be stronger as a union for it. But we also combined it with an argument that we had to fight in the here and now as a union to make trans people's lives better. And that's where we found this opportunity to fight for gender affirmation leave, which is the idea that people should have leave so that they can undergo gender transition as opposed to being forced out of the workplace 
either from quitting or just from being kind of excluded from the workplace by transphobic colleagues, which is a very common thing to happen. Um, so this created an opening across the sector in two ways. I mean, one way people probably know, it's actually been a very successful campaign. We've managed to get people fighting on the ground. A dozen sites have um, a gender affirmation leave. The majority of those sites are annual forms of gender affirmation leave, and that is a historic kind of achievement on the world scale and in the Australian, uh, in the Australian scale. Yeah, so I think we had that important win about winning the right to work for transgender people. But there's another front, I think, where it also opened up huge opportunities. And that is when we are fighting together, you know, with people who probably disagree with us on a lot of things, that is an opportunity to um, change people's ideas because it's when we're struggling to change the world that we can see that, you know, when reality can change, we can see that our ideas can change, I think, much easier. So an example that I wanted to give and that Damien suggested that I give was that um, just an argument that I had at the pub with a, uh, with, with, with a comrade. I'd been on the picket line with, with him for, for many days, but he sat me down and he said, uh, this gender affirmation leave, I don't get it. Like, why are we fighting for this? Why should only some, one group of workers be getting this? And so we had a bit of a quite a long uh, and robust discussion about like, yes, we need to fight for everyone, but we also need to address inequalities in the workplace on gendered lines, on transgender lines, on, on lines of race, and that, we, that, by, that this form of leave was actually about addressing an inequality that there are people who actually need to use more leave, just like people who, uh, just like our fight for menstrual leave. It's not everyone menstruates, not everyone needs menstrual leave, but, but, and so there are these genuine inequalities that we need to address. I actually don't know, um, I don't know if I convinced him that day, um, but uh, what I do know is that it was like a week after that protest, there were, uh, after that strike, there was the Pride in Protest rally in response to kind of the Posey Parker, Nazi, transphobic, you know, rampage around Australia. Um, there, was a, there was a protest in response to that, and I was quite, sh quite, quite shocked and, and really happy to see the number of union members that I've never seen before come to that, come to that rally. And there was heaps of union members who'd been on the picket lines fighting for gender affirmation leave. Now they were here at the, at, at the rally where we were raising much, much deeper questions about capitalism and the system and what we need to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, I, I found at the pub after the next strike that he had actually been one of the people who was, who was at the rally in the pouring rain. And I just think that goes to show that people who I don't think would ever have been going to that rally, that we can win them through some of these, these uh, more like really basic struggles. Gender affirmation leave is not radical. It's a very simple thing. It's kind of economistic in a sense. It's, it's saying that trans rights are just one at work. They're one at work, but they're also one in the streets and everywhere else. So, so I think, I think uh, that's, an, that's an important example. I wanted to give one other example because that same thing basically happened all across the country. And one other place where it happened was at ANU, um, where they had a log of claims meeting, which in the union is where you, at the beginning of a campaign for your enterprise agreement, you put up the vote for all of the things you want to fight for. And at that meeting, they put up that they wanted to fight for menstrual and menopausal leave and gender affirmation leave. Now, a bunch of uh, gender critical feminists, transphobic feminists, whatever you want to call them, came to that meeting to disrupt it. They said, you've got to take gender affirmation leave out of here and that menstrual and menopausal leave, that should only be allowed to be taken by biological females, um, sorry, by people who identify as women. Like they were trying to exclude trans, transgender men and um, non-binary people from accessing menstrual and menopausal leave. And this was a huge disruption to the meeting. They had to fight, uh, instead of fighting, fighting over here, they had to fight against these transphobes. 
And um, in, in that context, actually, even the union official from Canberra, he came to the national conference and reported back that he had tried to reason with these people. He tried to talk to them before the meeting, not to do it, but that he absolutely couldn't. Um, uh, he, he couldn't convince them. They were they were outreach them. They were just there to be bigots. And he gave that as his reason that he had voted against the motion against gender critical feminism in 2021, but he was voting for it in 2022. And the, I, I could kind of go on about uh, similar things. Things there was a huge struggle in Newcastle. People were very angry. angry at Wollongong University about the transphobia and actually turned that into a big local fight for trans rights on the ground. Uh, similar things at Melbourne University where it's been really politicised about a particular transphobic academic there named Holly Lawford-Smith who's demanded security around her classes, called for ripping down posters all in the name of free speech. But by the end of 2022, basically, uh, the, the amount of shift within the union is remarkable. So it's not just that we won, we won all of those real wins on the ground, but that we'd made actually a huge amount of progress ideologically on the question of trans rights. I don't know of any other union that has called out gender critical ideology uh, co collectively as something that as as something that is used to push transphobia. Um, not we had the uh, the union bureaucracy basically split. The whole secretary of the union, who had been the primary person friends with the turfs who'd pushed the motion, he stepped down out of his position and, and new people took his place. And every single leader in the country made a point of standing up and talking down the one remaining transphobic feminist that we have left in the leadership of our union, to our shame, in, in Victoria, Sarah Roberts, who's, a, who's been closeted for a while, but is now an out uh, gender critical feminist. And um, <laughs> well, this, is, this fight was what took, what took her out of the closet. Um, but yeah, it, it's very significant, I think, that the whole union took such a radical stance on transphobia in the context of, of this fight on the ground for a really, for a really basic um, demand. And I think the same is true in general for rallies and for anything, that sometimes less than radical demands are the thing that pulls people into struggle for the first time, and then by, by pulling people into struggle, we change the world and we change hearts and minds at the same time. Um, so. Before I finish, I mean, I do want to encourage, let's talk about the strategies and, and, and how that's based, based in, in our ideas of the real world. What are the problems that we might have with a lot of the liberal strategies? But the title of this um, conference is about, about liberation. So I wanted to finish by talking about what liberation means for trans people, what trans liberation means. And I think to even imagine it, we need to be able to imagine a world where all of those structures that are oppressive gender roles have been completely abolished, where you know, there's this, there was this phrase that came out of the Russian Revolution of not the, just the separation of church and state, but the separation of the love and the kitchen. The idea that we should not have all of our most intimate relationships related to people who are, have, have, a, have a role purely in reproduction, where food, child rearing, cleaning is all done collectively, that it's done um, in the context of not a dictatorship of the workplace, that we've abolished the dictatorship of the workplace for all of those industries and, and also all of the other, other industries. And to actually do that means a revolution against this whole system, this whole capitalist system. And, I, and that does not mean, and I think there's sometimes misapprehensions about this, it does not mean throwing out gender expression, it doesn't mean throwing out feminine or masculine presentation, and I don't think it means throwing out body alteration or hormones or anything like that. In fact, far from it. The revolution that we need to win this world back 
means confronting every single layer of sexism, racism, homophobia and transphobia. Revolution, as the quote says, is a festival of the oppressed and exploited. And we saw this after 1918 in the, in the German Revolution, where after that there was a flourishing of gay life. There was gay bookshops, gay cafes, uh, for the first time. In Berlin alone, there were 100 gay cafes and bars, more than I can say for Sydney in 2018. Um, workers joined the first mass gay organisations, there was the first mass gay publications, and in 1919, a year after the revolution, they established the Institute for Sexual Relations that would, years later, perform the first bottom surgeries for trans people. That was 100 years ago, and it was a revolution against kind of the, the feudal uh, top. I, I don't think we can imagine what a revolution against capitalism will bring, but it will bring a whole flourishing of gender expression, medicine, science, biology, art, and theory. And let's fight for it. Okay, that's it. Um, if you've enjoyed today's show, uh, I'd encourage you to get involved. I'll put some links in the show notes with some information and further reading about trans rights and, and, and what we can do. Uh, but Solidarity does a lot more than podcasts. We're active in our unions, we're active in the social movements, and I'd encourage you to get involved. So find out more at solidarity.net.au and let's change the world. <laughs>